morning, church. It's so good to see you all this morning. I would first like to welcome those of you who are first-timers or are relatively new to our church. We're so glad you're here. I'd like to express my gratitude to this church because you all continue to to show such support to me and my wife, Shannon. If you're a Christian, you know that we are part of the kingdom that is both here and not yet. This local church attempts to be many things to many people, and to me, it's a place where God's kingdom, the one that is here, is shown through our community and our love for one another. I'm proud to be a part of this local body. And if you're not yet a Christian, know that we have prayed for you, that we pray for you, that God wants a deep relationship with you. And I pray that your heart is shaped today. Today marks our fifth week in the book of James. To quickly recap, James is addressing believers in the church, and he's afraid that they're going to lose their faith. So he writes this letter to encourage them. He wants to deepen their dependence on God and draw clear lines on what is God's responsibility And what is theirs? In weeks one and two, we heard from Pastor Colleen, and she taught us how our trials help us to trust God more, and that people who trust God ask for wisdom, and then they use what they receive. And in the next week, week three, we heard from Pastor Shannon, a.k.a. my beautiful and talented wife, and a.k.a. the mother of our future daughter. It's so rare that I get to, like, give shout-outs to Shannon, so I love this. (laughs) Shannon taught us that despite our financial status, whether we're rich or we're poor, our trust in God is to be the same. And last week, we heard from Pastor Jim Manoia, who taught us that James says to wait, and the people who trust God don't blame God for their desire to sin. They instead give credit to God for all that is good in their lives. And today, our passage continues on this theme of dependence and trust. We're going to be looking at James 1, 18 through 21. So if you have your Bible or there's one in front of you or you have your favorite Bible app, please take a moment and turn to James 1, 18 through 21 or follow along here on the screen. In fulfillment... Of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls, the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, your word is true. I ask that you would make each individual here aware 
of the state of our hearts and minds towards you. Soften our hearts today. And may we listen intently with your Holy Spirit's conviction and encouragement. Amen. When I was in middle school, which was a really long time ago, we learned about gardening in science class. We learned about how to recognize good soil and good seeds. And we learned what nutrients were important for growth. And then when the time came, we learned how to move seedlings from the styrofoam cup they grew in to larger pots. And eventually, if we kept the conditions just right, we'd end up with a full-grown plant. That gardening knowledge has somewhat escaped me as an adult. (laughs) Shannon and I have a backyard with drought-friendly plants that we water once a week if we remember, and we have houseplants that typically last for around half the year if we remember to water them. But we know what a good garden looks like, and we struggle to do the things that'll get us there. And you all know what a good garden looks like. In fact, we're almost spoiled here in Santa Barbara. We have the Rose Garden at the Mission, or the Botanical Gardens just a mile or two from there, or any gardens in any of our larger-sized parks. It's easy to appreciate the beauty and the serenity that a well-groomed and cultivated garden can bring. The joys of keeping a garden well-groomed are easily understood, but the frustrations are, to get to that point, are also too real. In our passage this morning, James is the figurative science teacher, and he's the chief gardener. In the second half of verse 21, he says, And welcome with meekness, the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. The implanted word is, of course, the gospel. It's the central message that Christ died for our sins and rose again and gives us eternal joy in God through faith. It's this gospel that takes root in our lives when we're born again. And then earlier in verse 18, he says, In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Traditionally, the first fruits of the harvest were consecrated to and belonged to God. They were sacrificed back to God. And now in Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice is complete. And the idea of first fruits for James is simple. We are to become like Christ as much as we can. Jesus is the vine, and we're all the little seedlings. We're all Christians. Christians. We're little Christs. James is saying that because you and I have trusted Jesus, we have a new birth. We have a new life. And in that new life, it is the hope of God to follow after Jesus and follow what he has to say for our lives. It's God's hope that we become as much like Jesus as we can. But how do we cultivate our hearts to get to that point? The human heart can be a very fickle thing. When you and I do the work of gardening in our own hearts, we think we know what that work should be. And most of us probably think we're doing a decent job. 
All we have to do is water it here and there, try to make sure it gets enough sun, and occasionally pull up some weeds that might come up. And what happens is that, over time, the work of checking in with our hearts gets to be too much, and so we ignore it. The weeds start taking over, there's piles of withered clippings everywhere, and the plants you were trying to grow have now withered and died. And you look now at your overgrown, untamed, dead garden, and you shrug and say, well, I tried. And then we hear the word of the Lord, that it becomes implanted, and God gives us a new garden altogether. And this garden starts out with a lot of promise. It's brand new. But what happens when God starts speaking to us about the way we should do things is that we remember the way that we did it. And we handled it pretty well for a short amount of time, so we start trusting our skills over God's. And now in verse 19 and 20, James is giving us the advice of how we should respond to the gardener that is God. Verse 19 and 20 reads, You must understand this, beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. A lot of times we use this verse to speak to our attitudes towards others and to check our own defensiveness with one another and to prevent feeling emotions of passion and anger. And some of that is valid in the right context, but this text is primarily about how we respond to God's calling, his conviction, and his encouragement in our lives. So the question to us as we read this verse is, how do we respond to God? He is attempting to cultivate our hearts. How do we respond to him? Well, first, we are to be quick to listen. God knows that we can tend to not want to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. He knows that we want to do our own thing and that when God speaks, we're slow to hear it. We take our time. We sit in the same sin that God is calling us out of. So James encourages us to be quick to listen. Second, God knows that we can be defensive and speak without hearing all of what he has to say to us. We sometimes don't let God finish what he's saying before drowning it out with our own heart's desire. We can hear certain truths like conviction, and we can tend to respond with, oh, but God, you don't understand. I can't do that thing you've called me to. I'm too involved in this to get out now. Or a general response to God's encouragement. Oh, but God, you don't understand. I can't do that thing you've called me to. I've been disqualified. You don't know what I've done. There's no way you'd love me. But God is faithful. And he is making sure that the good work he started in you, he's going to see it through. So James encourages us to be slow to speak. And finally, we are to be slow to anger. This is one that we might have the most questions about. Why would you reach anger when hearing God's word? 
Well, I think there can be many reasons. One of those reasons Pastor Jim talked about last week. When life doesn't go the way we want, we get mad at them. Or another reason is when we put in all the work into something and the outcome is not what we expect, we get angry. Or when someone we love dies before their time, we get angry. And the last example I have for you is when we ignore God's voice and we continue to ignore God's voice and we continue to ignore God's voice, we don't know it in that moment, but we're building up human anger and we start looking like the opposite of what a little Christ should look like. And it's even, it's even okay to be angry at God. You just can't stay angry at God. You're not going to grow like you should, and your heart will turn to stone. God is God. He has the ability to handle your anger. And it's not that God doesn't want us to ever be angry. It's that we should be slow to anger because our anger doesn't produce God's righteousness in us. Psalms gives us a piece of advice I think works well here. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. In the time it takes for you to reach anger when hearing God's word, meditate within your heart in stillness and with humility. Receive the word. Lastly, in verse 21, we are tasked with getting rid of wickedness in our lives. And James is, of course, leaving this up to the individual. It's a reiteration of what he's already said regarding temptation and a doubling down on sin that he calls sordidness and rank growth of wickedness. We can use Paul's list in Corinthians if we'd like. Fornication, idolatry, Adultery, sodomy, dishonesty, greed, drunkenness, cursing, theft. These are the things that hide the kingdom of God, Paul says. We are to give up sin and receive with humility God's implanted word. So let's turn to applying this topic of our response to correction and encouragement to how we experience it in community. What do you do when someone in your close community, a trusted friend, a mentor, a coach, or a family member, heads down a bad path? How do you respond to someone when they point out behavior in you that's destructive? Or maybe it's not altogether destructive, Maybe it's a habit or a pattern that they've seen in you time and time again, and they know it's keeping you from being the person you're striving to become. How do you respond? Are you quick to listen? Are you slow to speak? Do you feel a rush of anger towards them for pointing out your bad habits or destructive behavior? You see, 
Christian community is not just a major perk of being a Christian, it's practically a prerequisite, and continued engagement is a near requirement to developing a heart that looks like Jesus's. So let's do a little thought and heart experiment. If you would and feel comfortable, please close your eyes and think back to your story of salvation. Let's go back 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Let's think about who was there. Was there a preacher? A pastor? A youth leader? A friend? A family member? Or maybe you entered into a relationship with God on your own after a night of prayer and Bible study. Well, what did you do then? Did you find other Christians? Did you find a church that you could belong to and grow in? Did you find a group of Christian friends that pushed each other on to good things? And what was your part in that? Did you help others grow? Did you receive correction and encouragement yourselves? Okay, you could open your eyes. I'm sure there are a lot of sweet moments that you guys thought of, and I would love to hear those. See, Christian community is part of being the whole being is part of the whole being a Christian gig. And a big part of that is walking alongside one another and stirring them on to closer relationship with God. It's one good friend saying to another, I'm going to pray for you because I know that God has promised to do a good work in you and he's not even close to being finished yet. It's confiding to one another what your sins are. As God's word is implanted in us, we should practice confession to one another so that we can develop first fruits, so that we can birth good things, so we can develop good practices of getting rid of wickedness, so we can receive with humility what God has to say in our lives. This is one of the reasons there are small groups at churches. It's why there are Bible studies and book clubs and community groups and youth groups and women's gatherings and men's and women's retreats. Groups are the church's way of fostering cultivated hearts with a bent towards growth and community in relationship with one another. This bent towards growth and community is why we start our toddlers with a common experience around the themes and values of Christianity. It's why we sometimes bring them to our main service to sing and dance, or to wave palm branches during Passover Sunday, or light Advent candles in December. We want them to grow into youth that love God when they're able to make that decision for themselves. Growth and community is the reason why there's youth groups that volunteer and serve in the city. It's why we fundraise to send them on missions trips. It's why we curate youth services that are genuine, relevant, and meaningful. We want them to grow. (laughs) Happened first service, not second service. Sermon writing 101, you're not supposed to cry at your own sermon. Uh, We want them to grow into college-aged Young adults who start realizing what it means for someone to own their own faith. That process of deconstruction and construction is so important. The faith of our mothers and fathers, the faith of those who brought us to God, can sometimes start to feel 
like an old hand-me-down jacket. But ownership of faith is a crucial step. And a cultivated heart that listens to the word of the Lord is so important in this stage. We want them to grow strong into their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, whether they choose singleness or marriage, and whether those who are married want to have children, we want to make sure that their hearts are well cultivated to hear God's word. So we have book clubs, progressive dinners, small groups, community groups, and mentoring. This stage of life is important because it's easy for folks to get lost in the shuffle of everyday busyness, running here or there, or maybe you're volunteering in addition to work, maybe you're Netflixing, maybe careers start taking off and you start feeling successful. Either way, God and the church tend to take a back seat because you just can't juggle it all. But this is where it's super important to stay as plugged in as possible to other little Christs who are cultivating their hearts too. And I'm not saying that you need perfect attendance to every single church event that we host. I'm saying surround yourselves with people who love God, with people who love you, and with whom you can speak into their lives, and they can speak into yours with such a frequency that you are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger when God calls, corrects, and encourages. And our seniors, we love our seniors. They have so much to continue to learn about God, and they've also had so much experience. We want to continue offering Bible studies and senior lunches and other events for them to continue to cultivate their heart and offer their wisdom to others. Everything we do Everything this church is about, and everything Christian churches are about, and hopefully everything your group of Christians outside this church is about, is cultivating our hearts to hear when the Lord speaks so that we know when to pull the weeds out. We know how to water the seedlings. We know when to keep it out into the sun. If you are going to depend on God to endure trials, to be content in your financial situation, to know when to wait on him so that you bear fruit, your heart is going to need to be dug up. It's going to need to be put in some new soil. It's going to need to be carefully maintained and given the appropriate level of sunlight. And when that's happening, you're going to want to push back. You're going to want to ignore God or talk over God or raise up in anger at what God is doing. Our salvation depends on God. Let's listen when he speaks, remove wickedness from our lives, and receive the word humbly and be doers of what God says. In closing, I have some questions for reflection. The first, what ways are we actively listening for God's word in our lives? What areas of our life has God been speaking to us about and we haven't been quick to listen, slow to speak, 
and slow to anger? And how are we living in community with other Christians? Do we help cultivate the hearts of those around us? Do we have people in our lives who do the same to us? God is near, and he wants your heart not to be of stone, but of flesh. And he wants to do the work of cultivating it. Won't you let him? Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.